Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. And this is Frank Pellicone. And this is guest star Mike Bledsoe. <laughs> um, you are listening to episode two hundred six of the podcast, and this is part of our feature series this year of movies Bledsoe needs to see before he dies, and we will be covering 1982's The Thing, directed by John Carpenter and starring Kurt Russell, Keith David, Wilfred Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clellan, Clennon, um, and a bunch of other people that I don't have listed. Uh, Frank, we've talked about this uh, twice on the podcast before, Uh most recently, episode 167, the top five films in 1982, and then way back on episode seven, uh, the top five alien movies. Uh, so we've talked about this a couple of times already, but uh, I wanted to ask you first, uh, why? I know that you had a big, long list of possibilities, but why was this on the list that you gave the blitz Uh I think that in terms of a horror movie, I I feel like it's pretty perfect. So I think if it's, if you're only going to give someone a limited amount of things to watch, you may as well give them the best. Mm. And I know that Bloods has already seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So mm. gotcha. this is like maybe my second favorite horror movie of all time. It's definitely top five. Interesting. And I never heard you make that claim before. So yeah, that's good. Um, all right, so uh, I want to turn it over, Micah. Before you saw this, what did you know about it, if anything, and what was your kind of um, assumptions or expectations or anything like that? Yeah, I knew that it took place in a in like in a uh, science station, like an either well, it was Antarctica, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that there was some sort of like virus or some kind of infection going on, some sort of like infection Mm storyline. And I think I've heard Frank use the term body horror before talking about this movie. I don't really have a great handle on that terminology, but um, that's pretty much all I knew about it. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen the Cronenberg movie The Fly with Goldblum? Uh, <laughs> I think I've only seen clips from that. Okay. I was just going to give you a sample body. Okay. Um, um so what uh, so give us your like general thoughts and get as specific as you want um about having watched this. Um so Zeke, our friend Zeke, friend of the podcast was uh, he kindly invited me over to watch it with him since this is also like one of his favorite movies. And he was, he was like shocked and surprised that I had never watched it with him. Um, in all the time that I spent over at his house, but I guess it just never came up. Um, his son, his 12 year old son was also shocked that I'd never seen it. And he kind of like, he kind of gave me one of these, like, what you've never seen the thing like like what have you been doing with your life (laughs) um i've been watching the last unicorn right um so uh yeah i enjoyed it um after seeing it the first time i wanted to watch it again because i felt like felt like i was spending a lot of time just trying to uh, like figure out and understand what was going on. Not that it was a confusing plot or anything, but there's just a lot of characters and mm-hmm. a lot of different stuff going on and people in different places. And, um, and it's not really, it's not really explained verbally that much. There are definitely some parts where, you know, there's definitely some parts where the, where the characters like make blatant statements that are meant to, explain something that happened but um but overall i think that it kind of just um i think it kind of wanted you to be more in the position of the of the um the scientists that didn't really know what was going on Mm -hmm. sort of like letting it unfold um so so i wanted to watch it again to see 
if I took anything different away from it or if I got a different impression of it when I could focus more just on the maybe more on the filmmaking and not as much on the plot and characters and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I definitely, like I said, I definitely enjoyed it. I didn't come away from it thinking that it was amazing or anything. Um, but I would say I enjoyed the second viewing just as much as the first. Uh, there were some, there were some parts that, that came across differently watching it the second time. So like, for example, in the beginning with the, with the dog, when they're chasing down the dog with the, um, um, in the helicopter and trying Mm -hmm. to kill, trying to kill the dog that's trying to escape from the Norwegian, uh, science station, uh, and it may, it may just be like my, um, understanding of what was going on, but the second time I definitely felt like it had more of a consciousness, like the dog specifically came across more like a like a conscious actor than it did the first time the first time it it came across just like it was just trying to escape these people that were after it but the second time watching the way the way that they filmed it and the way that they filmed it once it got into the station and kind of like how it was reacting to the crew and everything it it gave me the more of an impression of there's some alien consciousness there that's like observing and trying to figure out what to Mm -hmm. do so I thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed all the special effects. Uh, they didn't found them a little bit gross, <laughs> but like just enough to kind of um, just enough to, to to sort of like make me feel a little bit grossed out, but not so much that I wanted to turn it off. Um, I really liked the all of the arachnid and insect type uh stuff stuff that they um that they did uh i was actually like most underwhelmed by the final monster at the end Mm -hmm. uh it just was the least interesting looking one and probably the least surprising and it was also just didn't it just didn't come across as anything that looked real or scary i think the the and, and that could be because it was like so um it, it was so like in focus and obvious and uh clear like like shot clearly and with long um still shots it wasn't as much like you could just you could just sit there and have a clear look at it it wasn't like mm-hmm. the other monsters where there was action going on or people were trying to escape or there was other stuff like you know other people being killed and that type of thing yeah um so a couple a couple favorite moments from the scene i'm looking at my list here um i really i really really loved the i don't know if you'd call it a jump scare but the surprise scare when the doctor's hands went into the body of was it i can't remember which character it was but he was trying to he was like using a def- defibrillator trying to resuscitate yeah one of the i can never remember the characters names in this except for mcgrady and um childs <laughs> i can't remember which one it was but he you know he he went to put the uh the defibrillator down on his chest and the and the chest opens up and he goes mm-hmm. like straight into it yeah that um that definitely surprised me and it looked great and the other thing that was cool about that was that it was like you don't often see a jump scare where you're being um sucked into the frame mm. uh it's usually something jumping out of the frame at you or jumping into the frame and this was where you you know you're watching it and you're you know you see him go over and over again like kind of go through the motion of trying to resuscitate and like you're kind of primed with that Mm -hmm. thought of like going down and down and then he finally does it and it's just like there's no resistance he just goes right into the body right uh and visually i really enjoyed that 
Um, I loved the testing scene where they were testing the blood. Um, it was tense and uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. And the jump scare in that scene got me too. And then after the jump scare where the monster comes out of, um, is it Child's? No. That, no child's yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, when the monster comes out of the the guy in that scene that was that was a uh, probably another one of my favorite scenes so um overall and this may seem strange but i felt like this movie was really cozy like i, f- I felt like i was just kind of hanging out in the science station in antarctica in the middle of nowhere and uh watching these events unfold i was def- it was definitely very immersive to mm-hmm. me and um, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think that I had any major complaints about it. There was a little bit of, I thought it was a little bit silly how casual they were being with the, with with uh, with some of the bodies and some of the stuff that they had recovered from the Norwegians. Um, being scientists, it seemed. A little bit funny that they were being so mm-hmm. casual about handling that stuff. Um, but overall, yeah, I, I don't really have any any complaints about it. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely watch it again sometime. Um, I enjoyed all the actors. I mean, all the actors are like classic, mm-hmm. you know, classic actors from that time period. I had an awesome cast. Um. Is that Wilford Brimley? Is that the same one from the commercials? Oh yeah, yeah. is it yeah, Quaker okay. Oats? Wilford mm-hmm. Brimley. Yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea. Like I didn't recognize him watching it. Yeah, I saw his name in the credits. I thought, well, that was that. Is that his brother or something? <laughs> oh no. But yeah, I mean, those are. I guess those are my general impressions of it. Yeah, it's pretty starts without a cast. Um, Frank, I we've talked about this a lot, but like, um, how does that jive with your thoughts? Um, I'd like to offer an interpretation of the final monster. Um, cause I understand what you're saying, but to me, I think it's that the alien intelligence has basically just given up trying to trick anybody at that point. Cause who's left to trick and is just like throwing everything it can into his transformation to try and, kill McCready and keep itself alive, you know? So it's just an amalgamation of, like, everything that's been encountered so far and trying to make itself as big and threatening as possible. Um, and then he blows it up, so, you know, whatever. But um, can, can I ask you ab- about the actual mechanism of the of the infection and the, the alien? Uh-huh. Um, so my impression from, like, this is just what I understood from how they were talking about it but it seems like so the alien so i did love the i did love the idea that the alien had this like fractal biology where each part like each component part of it was you know could rep could become a a whole um each each part each like cell or whatever was was sort of like a fully realized life form yeah um so that was cool but um i guess like how i understood it was that the alien would invade the person's body and then take them over like take over their body at a cellular level and replace the person's cells with their own but then at the same time they would the alien would try to maintain the appearance of the host and pass as the host until it was ready to reveal itself. So when so like when you see um, like I can't remember their names right now, but when you see someone who's infected that then transforms into the monster sure that like they've already been fully replaced at that point 
and it's just the monster like taking off the costume that's how i that's how i thought i understood it but i don't i don't really know if that's how it was intended does that make sense i think that's right i mean there's the scene with um uh, who the doctor like examining the blood on a cellular cellular level and it's definitely a like one for one cellular replacement by the infection um just spreading throughout but it happens so fast so yeah i think that i my interpretation has always been that it's an infection through um blood or like some other kind of like intravenous like saliva maybe um, especially because the one scientist, when they go back to um, the Norwegian outpost, um, has slit his wrists and allow like the blood to drain out to the point where it just froze in like stalactites. And I think that's so he was getting rid of anything that the alien could infect inside him. Does that make sense? Um, because everybody that gets infected has at some point had like a off-screen, I think, encounter where they, the aliens had the chance to somehow get inside them without anyone else seeing, because that's the whole point, is for it to be able to do it secretly so it can move among you and then, like, take over people individually, because it can't really react, even when, like, it's confronted, you know, um, when Fuchs, um, the whole, like, ripping the hand off thing and they're trying to burn it, and Fuchs's head, like, pulls off and jumps into the ceiling, right? Like, it doesn't have the ability to deal with multiple opponents at once. It has to deal with them individually so it can take them over and move. And I think that's, you know, again, like on a cellular level. And that's why, like, when he extrapolates out, what is it, 27,000 27, hours or 27,000 whatever, like, from if it gets out till it infects. You know, I think it's just how fast it spreads through the body. So I don't know. So here's the other question about the alien is can the alien, like how does the alien exist without a host? I guess when they discovered it and they dug it out of the ice, it was in its original form. Or it's just, uh, I mean, you've got things like, um, what are those things called? Um, They look like they can exist in any environment. Do you know what I'm talking about? They find them in, the Arctic ice, they, I think they call them like woolly bears or something, but yeah, that's not the right term for it. I think it's something like that, where it can, even like one cell is enough to basically infect anything. If like that one cell is somehow introduced into a host, then every cell in that body becomes its own individual host, which is why it's so um, difficult for them to get rid of it. Even so if does it, the bodies and whatever. Does it live, like, can it live without a host? Yeah, I well, I think that as soon as it enters a host, it is destroying, like, everything that makes up the, whatever, like, the base biological component. So the human, the dog, whatever. And then every single cell that's inside that creature is, its own individual organism at that point that has the potential to infect. So as long as like one thing survives, that's all it needs to, um, you know, to carry on. Cause okay. originally there, there has, there has been talk several times of them making a sequel to this movie. Um, and I believe would take place in the idea of somebody finding, um, childs and, uh, Mac, frozen and one of them is you know infected right that's like one of the biggest debates among like internet nerds is who's like infected with the thing is it is it child or is it mac or neither or both and does it like even really matter yeah do you have an opinion about that um i always think the child is infected and sees uh, McCready as, like, the one ultimate threat to its existence. So is just playing along because it knows that 
um, McCready's going to die and it can just like freeze and live and wait it out until somebody comes and finds him. Um, and I think that just because of Child's um, getting lost, like coming off the wire because he thought he saw, um, what's his name, uh, out in the out yeah. in the snow. Like, I think that is, so there's a part, and Chris, like you've seen this a number of times too, correct me if I'm wrong, but mm. when, when they shoot the flamethrower at the dog, there's a part of the dog that rips off and goes yeah. into the ceiling, right? Yeah, it escapes. Mm-hmm. And and they never talk about it. They don't talk about it, and they never go after it because they don't understand what they're dealing with at that point. And I think that's your clue that the thing was infecting people outside of what you see happen. Yeah. And that's what I, I really think the child's when they're outside or at some point, Childs gets infected, and that's like them playing whatever the the thing is playing the long con by not revealing that he's infected, so it can like keep almost like an ace in the hole or whatever in case something happens. And I really think it sees McCready as like a threat. I mean, I think there's an intelligence behind the like the alien nature of it, and it knows that all it has to do is wait out this like frail body and like have it freeze or starve or whatever. And it did it before, you know, it was able to survive for whatever, 10,000 years or whatever the time frame is in the movie. Yeah, after our discussion a couple years ago or whatever, I guess, Frank, um, I was thinking about the ending like a bit more myself this time watching it. Um, I know there's tons on the Internet and I've read a little here and there, um, but I was more interested in the filmmaking behind like the end scene and the thought process. Um, I mean, a carpenter says that he knows who is infected um at the end but like doesn't want to say that necessarily because it kind of defeats the purpose um of the idea of distrust um but there is like a logic behind it i i want i i think it's probably child's is the easiest is is infected and i think mccready suspects it even if it is just out of like a um natural distrust of the events um, but it's like when he hands him the bottle of whiskey um, at the end, he gets a little smile like after he hands it to him. And I suspect that he knows that he's like tricking Childs kind of like, you know, when Childs puts the bottle to his lips and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I I think it's probably Childs. Um that's probably the one that's infected if anybody is um but again it kind of defeats the purpose to think about it or argue about it too much i think in some ways because it's it's more thematic than that yeah Um, but i mean you could easily i think find a way to argue for mac being the infected party too sure or neither of them yeah right yeah there's gonna die alone and uncertain of the other right um one of um, my um yeah go ahead i also like i when you said cozy i've never thought of it that way but that's the perfect description Mm -hmm. because it really does feel like like being in a house in the middle of like a blizzard or you know like a snowstorm where you feel like super isolated but also warm and like, that's, I think, one of the best aspects of the horror of it is the fact that these men who are all, like, super familiar with each other and comfortable, like, in their living arrangements now are completely set on edge and unable to trust people that they've known for however long. And yeah. I love that feeling of, like, like intimate claustrophobia that happens inside the, um, like, the confines of, like, that, you know, because you, you come to know the corridors and the rooms and everything. Just from the way the carpenter films it and like kind of lets he like makes you have an intimacy with it, um, that I think is pretty amazing. So I think that's a really good way to describe it. Cozy. Yeah, it's one of the things I noted too, like when I was right just writing stuff down here that Mike mentioned. That's uh, I mentioned that because yeah, it's it's a really good point that um like you feel like you're there. Um and like you said, Frank, you get to know like what 
the space is like and you know like how everything works and it's all a very like logical kind of setting um for you that's laid out through kind of establishing shots and you know kind of visual exposition um because that's another point mike that you made is that um this movie compared to most is exposition light i think as opposed to heavy and i think that's another thing that uh keeps you engaged while watching it is that you kind of have to pay attention uh to what's going on as opposed to just having everything kind of laid laid out and explained to you all the time um and i always find that for me, much more effective in watching a movie than having too much explained to me. But yeah, cozy is a good word for it, like that immersive nature of it. <clears throat> this movie was also like incredibly ahead of its time and basically ruined Carpenter's career for a few years where nobody really wanted to... Like he lost, what is he, deal at Universal, I think, because of this movie. Mm -hmm. um, just because I think it is... Like, horror was super popular, even, like, at that time, especially. But I think it's too ambiguous, and people felt like it was just too, like, extreme in the way that it depicted things. <clears throat> and a lot of that has to do with the, you know, the practical effects. Like, they're, especially the dog and Fuchs's head, I mean, they're amazing to watch. And to think that all that stuff is actually happening... Or, like, the tentacle things, like the wispy, like, spaghetti strands that come out of people. Like, I, I don't know. Like, all that stuff is just so well-known. Or so well-done. Um, yeah. Yeah, this was this was negatively reviewed upon release. Um, it was seen as kind of like a doll film that was, like, too special effects heavy. It was criticized for the graphic nature of the special effects. Um, uh it was criticized for being like nihilistic um uh overall and it was um even i think even ebert who came around on the movie later on said that um it was like basically like a uh he thought it was scary but it was nothing nothing but special effects overall like that it was like kind of empty and it was the special effects that were scary um, didn't really find the atmosphere that scary, and he came around on it a little bit later in life, and um, had a more positive review of it, and so did lots of critics. Um, kind of came around onto it eventually, but yeah, and I think that's what it is. Frankly, it's just ahead of its time. Um, like what was the, the optimism of this time for sci-fi was like, uh, like ET and stuff like that. Like, is around? Like, oh, it was time. released the same day as ET. I think. Oh, was it? Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know. It that. was this ET, and there was another horror movie that came out like all on the same day. Yeah, was it was it Poltergeist? That would have been that would have been this year. Uh, I can't remember. I'll have to look it up. Um, but oh, Blade Runner, I think actually. Hmm. Mm. I, I think it's I think it's this ET and Blade Runner on the same day. Gotcha. Yeah, and. And when this kind of like hurts his career overall, that's when he starts making these kind of smaller budget movies um, afterwards where like he's basically doing everything, right? Like he's editing, he's scoring, he's doing all that kind of stuff. And that's how you get like a lot of those like 80s movies out of him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that you can get Prince well, of Darkness without right. the yeah. thing being a failure. So, yeah. So what direction was Carpenter on before this movie? I mean, he was considered one of the hottest directors in Hollywood because of um, Halloween in particular, because Halloween made so much money. Um, and it's really kind of like, well, I mean, we watched, it's funny that we're watching, talking about this after we did the Halloween watch along. Because mm -hmm. um, it's such a traditionally, like, crafted horror movie, I think that has its innovations but doesn't like go over the top with it you whereas mean halloween thing, yeah halloween whereas okay. the thing is just so much a departure from anything else that you would see at the time and maybe not from like an actual filmmaking standpoint because there's a lot of stuff from blade runner is a good example but also stuff like brazil and um i don't know like i know it's a little bit after this but like stuff like lynch's dune where there was these filmmakers that were taking a lot of chances, and I think there's still genres that are, especially at this time, that are just considered like either 
the realm of children or people don't take seriously. That's like, I love Ebert, but Ebert's such a fucking hypocritical dick because he just like, he's always like that. Like he shits all over these horror movies in the seventies and eighties out of some, I don't know, like almost like moral obligation. I think he feels to do so. And then when he comes back and examines them with some more maturity as a fucking like actual film, yeah. I think you realize, and I think a lot of people like that, like especially stuff like Texas Chainsaw and this, and um, I don't know. Yeah. While I always, I tend to agree with Ebert more than Cisco. Cisco at least always stuck to his fucking guns, and if he hated something, he hated it 20, 30 years later as well most of the time. Um, <clears throat> at least there was consistency, but yeah, Ebert was always doing that stuff. Um, I was looking it up here too, uh, Escape from New York is right before this, and that ends up overall making a pretty pretty good amount of money for the time period, like off of a six million dollar budget. It makes twenty-five um in the domestic um box office over the course of like five only like five months in theaters. So I mean it had a decent return to it too. So yeah, I mean I don't know what the comp would be of like where Carpenter was heading, but I mean um um, certainly like an A-list director, I would say, like that was maybe not getting the biggest projects, but maybe by the 90s would have, you know, I mean, would have been on that list of directors. Mm-hmm. Um, That is something I wanted to. Well, that goes in the carpenter. I do want to ask both of you. You're both more musically knowledgeable and inclined than I am. Um, And. Like, I'm always shocked when I see that Ennio Morricone did the score because, and I don't know if this is a positive or a negative, I really don't. Like, I never remember the score of this movie, and it doesn't really feel like when I'm watching it, like I'm even hearing it a lot of times. And I don't know if that's a positive that's so seamless into the movie, or if it's not Morricone's greatest score, maybe. And since I don't know shit about like music or music theory or any of that kind of stuff, I didn't know if either of you had an opinion on Morricone's score in this. I think it's pretty. I think that it's pretty sparse the way that the way that it's used. And there are a few different. I, I remember hearing a few very distinct pieces. Like there's this the kind of the um, I don't know like this almost pursuit theme that that they play during the first scene with the helicopter and that kind of comes back that's sort of like a a plotting um sort of just like a plotting theme um which i like but it's 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 suspenseful and it's but it's not very it's pretty slow and um it gives you it gives you that feeling of just like a slow build towards towards uh you know some just a slow suspenseful build and then at other times i think there were some some string parts like some more orchestral parts that didn't really do that much for me they didn't seem very they didn't really seem very distinctive at all um the, th- the thing that I remember about the sound, the part that stands out the most is when I can't remember who it was, but the one guy is on the, the one guy is on the ground. He, or he's on his knees and he's, he's been infected and they're all gathered around him in a circle. And he looks at the, he looks at the crew and screams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That to me was the that was the most um, memorable sound in the film, and there's I don't think there was anything else like it. I think it was just in that moment, and it was very it was actually very it reminded me a lot of David Lynch because mm-hmm. the character wasn't moving in a human way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was like it was very unnatural. Like it didn't seem like that sound should be coming from that body. Yeah. And I don't know. Lynch is, is good for that kind of, uh, 
um that kind of thing yeah but, when i see that too there's also a that's a what invasion of the body snatchers is that right frank uh-huh yeah, yeah yeah it makes me think of that i don't know if you ever seen that mike um with donald sutherland when he i think i might have seen something like a long time ago or yeah. something but there's kind of something similar to that with sutherland like screaming it's interesting you make the lynch comparison in that point because both lynch and um carpenter were pretty famous for uh doing a lot of their own ambient sounds in their movies um i mean lynch like to a much greater extreme but carpenter um scored and did sound effect for a lot of his movies so and i think that it's on purpose like you're right like it is a completely like otherworldly like sound um to show the creature like i guess like raging in defiance against like his his captors or whatever and ultimately it doesn't even matter because it still gets them all or maybe yeah that is a really great scene so i mean the score i i don't think it's anything special personally but i did like certain parts of it but it wasn't like oh this is you know like like the other option that you provided like this was so well integrated with the visuals that i didn't that you know i didn't uh uh you know take sense of it like as a separate part i i don't think i had that experience yeah i think, I think it's just pretty purpose. minimal yeah i think that minimalism is on purpose because he's trying to keep you I mean, the one thing the score does, even in like a horror movie, is it kind of saves you from the reality of what you're watching, sort of, right? Like, it's a connection to the fact that, oh, this is just a movie. And the more minimal the score, the less you're, um, less comfortable, I guess you get, that you're just watching a movie. Like, in Texas Chainsaw, the score is mostly, um, tuning forks and, you know, dissonant sounds and whatever. And I think that actually adds to the effect there and here of making you more uncomfortable as a viewer yeah that's that's why i was asking because one of the one of the thoughts i had was like maybe it's only because like they're trying to keep uh music out of it because it breaks a sense of isolation then at that point um potentially like that you're feel that you're feeling being immersed in the environment and maybe it does need to be light but um the only time i remember honestly hearing it is in the beginning of the movie and then when it kicks in at the very end with um mac and childs um that's the only times i even remember the score and i like that part of it like you know the intro kind of like that intro score and outro score but um but yeah. by comparison when i watch a movie like rogue one mm -hmm. uh when i watched rogue one i i couldn't take it the score is so intense and it's so it just overpowers everything um that i found it really difficult to watch yeah so plant. i don't know what's that i called you a plant you called me a plant why because yeah. chris is uh the greatest opponent of rogue one. Oh, i don't care about that movie one way or the other it's just the thing that the thing that I remember is when I sat down to watch it, I had headphones on and the score was just unbelievably overwhelming. Like, yeah, I think that's the problem with a lot of the modern Star Wars movies is yeah. that need to just fill every second with like strings and horns or whatever. Yeah, just very intense music, you know, in intensely loud, but also like intense compositions. <laughs> They're just so overwhelming so i wanted to ask um i know you've seen some of carpenter's other movies like where do you like you told me you've seen like uh escape um halloween obviously since we did it on the podcast they live big trouble like where did you where do you kind of rank this among carpenter's works that you've seen so yeah i haven't seen that much but I would probably put They Live as my favorite. Mm -hmm. um, I just like the subject matter. And 
uh, I mean, I'd probably put it right there with Halloween. Like I liked both of both of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I have a strong preference one way or the other. And I barely remember Escape from New York. I watched it like twenty, you know, twenty five years ago or something. So, um. Yeah, I prefer like they live. I just, I just really enjoyed that because it's so unique and the. I just love the visuals and everything in that movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, I'll I'll watch this again at some point. Um, I would watch Halloween again. I enjoy both of them. I, I I'd, I'd probably watch some other movie of his first though. Yeah, I mean, I I watch Halloween since we started doing the podcast because we've talked about it so many times, but I think I've watched Halloween every year for the past five years. Like even when I didn't have to, um, I've just like started like watching it like once a year. Um, and the more I watch it, the more I'm taken with, um, how well-crafted it really is. And then of course I watch big trouble at least once a year, if not more, cause it's one of my comfort movies, but, um, like childhood movies, but <clears throat> I did watch that with you one time and I, I don't remember that much about it, but I remember mm-hmm. enjoying it. Yeah. It's a it's a goofy, ridiculous, but fun movie. Um yeah. you know. Um but yeah, uh artistically I think like he did something here that he doesn't I guess the closest he comes, Frank, is what, Prince of Darkness, is that right? Like in terms of like the immersiveness and the atmosphere of this. You cut out on me a little bit there. Oh. Could you say it again? Frank, um, so is Prince of Darkness the closest he comes in terms of immersiveness? Yeah, well, maybe. Like in terms of like a small setting kind of type thing? Immersiveness? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's definitely more of almost like, not. I don't know, found footage isn't right, but like a cinema verite to that movie mm-hmm. at times. Um, and I think just because no one would fund him, so... He just had to like do everything on the cheap, and it kind of gives it that feeling. Um, I don't know. Everything else seems pretty ex- still pretty expansive, is what I mean. Like you know, it takes place in multiple locations, like you know, and um, there's more outdoor, like kind of like I don't know. It just doesn't feel as close as cl- uh, claustrophobic um, overall, like the entire movie. And I guess Prince of Darkness is the closest he gets to that. Yeah, I guess maybe. Um, a lot of times his his stuff takes place in many different settings, and there's indoor, you know, interior, exterior shots. Like you know, it's it's kind of all over the place. And um, I guess underground and big trouble, he gets into that a little bit, like um, some of that claustrophobia. But uh. And Frank, I want to ask you this, like, because uh, we've talked about Carpenter a lot, but it's like, once you get past the 80s, what's mm. your, yeah, what, like, I know we talked about In the Mouth of Madness, and I think that's the only movie in the 90s, maybe, we talked about? We talked um, about Vampires. Oh, that's right, Dan. Yes, I I did forget about that one. But what do you think happens there? He gets money again and doesn't know what to do with it. He's not forced to find cheap ways to get around, like, constraints and stuff. I don't know. So you think it's kind of like a thing, like, his in, his creativity and inventiveness kind of disappear when he has money? Maybe. Maybe he just runs out of projects that he loves and just kind of is just doing things for money at a certain point. Mm-hmm. I mean... Village of the Damned is fine. Yeah, he got a lot of money in Escape from L.A., and it just looks like crap. But, I mean, that's the problem with that movie. Not necessarily the movie, just the way it looks. Mm. Um, We thought Vamp... I think Vampires is fine. Yeah, it's fine. And then he only does two movies after that. He does Ghost of Mars, yeah. which is a mess, and The yeah, Ward, yeah. which is just kind of a miss in terms of, like, not being, like, super scary or particularly well done. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not even sure. Oh, yeah, I have seen the ward. Yeah, I did watch that. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's really weird what happens to his career from where he starts. I always forget that he did Starman too. I always forget about that. Yeah. Um, and I the forget... Fog and Dark yeah. Star and yeah. I saw him pre season thirteen. I mean, he's got a shitload of great movies in his yeah. strength. I don't know if I consider Starman a great movie. Starman's an interesting movie. Yeah, Starman's a thing that I loved when I was a kid, and I, I just when I think about John Carpenter, I don't think Starman. Um, Starman sounds like something Robert Zemeckis would have done early in his career or something, not John Carpenter. Um, <clears throat> to me, it's I always I just always forget it. Um, it's uh, I just don't think of like drama and romance um as part of Carpenter's repartee. Um, I suppose. And I'm always shocked when I see it. But yeah, I used to watch that movie all the time when I was a kid, like on HBO and shit like that. Um, all right. Um, any final thoughts from either of you on this? No, I'm happy you liked it, Bledsoe. Do you think we're going to make it, Frank? Do you think we're going to be able to do this list before I die? <laughs> you only got three more movies, buddy. I hope you don't die that soon. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right, good. Well, you just had a birthday, so I mean... Who knows? That's true. Um, I'm not making any promises. I make no promises ever about anything with my. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> cheers. Um, What's the next movie? I'm going to say um, the Clint Eastwood mm. tumbleweed, tumbleweeds thing. Mm. What's it called? <laughs> The good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, that one. <laughs> the tumbleweeds thing. Um, yeah, that's uh huh. I I'm interested. The canteens and tumbleweeds. Uh, you're already dismissive. <clears throat> Hot guns thing. and saddles. <laughs> so, uh, give us a little preview, just in general. Like, how many westerns have you seen that you like? Oh, there might be two questions on that. How many westerns have you seen, and then how many westerns have you liked? The answer to that is none. <laughs> I don't oh, think but... I've ever. I, I I just I have no taste for the western aesthetic. None. So. This will be my first. Hmm. I mean, last time we talked about um, Unforgiven, but, and I have seen that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, like, I mean, this is a legitimate, is this, this is like a legitimate spaghetti western, isn't it? Yes. This is like the, the spaghetti East. western, if yeah. you really the, want to look the at it. The quintessential. Like yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it um I hope it opens your eyes and you're watching the Outlaw Josie Wales in two weeks. <laughs> uh, that I I I I hope that's not the case. Um, myself, but it's like that's a little too far. But um, that's fine. I don't like westerns. Not a big fan of them. But um, there are some really really great westerns, and um, I think this is one of them. Like um like myself like um like this the wild bunch um once upon a time in the west um hateful eight Shut, what the fuck <laughs> see he would Yo. if he if he had seen the fly he would be a plant look the hateful eight had um shoot what's that thing that they do at the beginning with the music what's that called the opening montage or no there's like there's a name for the opening scene with the music you don't you, i don't you, i, you I mean i probably once i hear it i would like oh that's what you mean but yeah i i don't know it's not like we like have a movie podcast um, or anything you know <laughs> uh yeah you know i this is sad because um just i think i'm getting tired yeah. and i can't remember what that's called the uh it's got a word uh, okay i'll bring it back with me next week um but anyway it's got that hateful eight also had an intermission 
I hated that movie. Thank you. Fuck that movie. And you know they destroyed a, a like rare vintage Martin guitar by accident in that movie. No, wow. you know that story. Uh, uh-huh. So they so Martin had let had lent um, a guitar from like the late eighteen hundreds to them for the filming, and Kurt Russell thought that the guitar he was holding was a prop guitar, not a real rare like ancient guitar and he destroyed it on camera it's in the movie so um by accident you know he thought it was just a a junk a piece, you know, piece of junk prop but it was like a real rare uh vintage martin from the 1800s so does he destroy it like almost like uh, ad libbing or improving a scene, or he, I don't know if it was improv, but um, it might have been. Oh, yeah, yeah. Supposedly, like Jennifer Jason Lee was was like in total shock and aghast when it happened because she knew that it was the real guitar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I I do not. I, I think there are scenes in that movie that are really good. But I do not like that movie as a whole. Um, um, yeah, I thought fascinating, fascinating idea. Some really good scenes at times. Some a couple good performances in it, but um, not not a great movie. Um, in a whole, it's my least favorite of Tarantino's works. Um, mm. you you would there's, argue Death Proof is worse than that, right, Frank? There's a three way tie. Oh, uh, what's the other one? Inglorious Bastards. I think Inglorious. I don't. I'm not a big fan of that movie overall, but I like it better than Hateful Eight by a lot. Um, is um, Overture the the word I was looking for? Yes. Yes. It has an overture. Yes. Yeah. The AI already told me the answer. <laughs> um. You've been replaced, you got, sir. You, got, you, got <laughs> you and you and your searches have been replaced. Uh, 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 all right, so uh, that's really exciting. Um, Bledsoe's first like real spaghetti western um, next month um, in the Good and the Bad and yep. the Ugly. So thank you for listening, everybody, and have a good week. Oh, deuces! I guess. See ya.